Hey everyone, I'm Andrew Claven. I'm Michael Knowles. Quiet. No, I, I finished yet. I'm, I'm the star. <laughs> I'm the creator of Another Kingdom. Who the hell are you? I'm Michael Knowles. I play all the characters. <laughs> this is Another Kingdom discussion live. <laughs> All right, we're the most incompetent hosts. Well, hey, it, it only took us three seasons to not be able to even start off a discussion about this show. That seems about right. That seems about right. Actually, this is some of the best work you and I have ever done. I'm happy to be here talking about it. And if we can bring a little bit of incompetence here and not to the actual and not to show, we're <laughs> doing a good job. That's the way I want to do it, yeah. And there is a lot to talk about yes. because it's the third season I can say, because I, I didn't actually do any work in the creation of this thing, you know, I, I just read all the words that you wrote and played all the characters that you created. I can say it's the best season. It's my favorite so. one. I think so, too. And I think we I actually, you know, you and I started this together. Just It was really just you and me. And in kind of in your it. attic. Yeah, you know, and really literally in my attic. And we built it up. And I, I had an idea of how it should sound. Now, with the help of these guys here who've done such a great job, it sounds exactly like what I kind of imagined it would sound like. Yeah, it, and it only took us three seasons to do it. And, <laughs> know. you know, it, it, obviously it was very popular from the first season yeah. onward, which we were very happy to say. Shocked, yeah. Shocked and amazed at that. And it was very popular in the first season, and it grew in popularity in the second and third season. If this were any other project with any other creators, this would be in development at, I think, pretty much any studio in Hollywood. Let me tell you something. I, my television agent is a, a doer guy. I love him. He's, an, he's one of the few honest uh, men of integrity who's a Hollywood agent. It's almost like uh, the, the two worlds kind of collide. It's like antimatter and matter. But, but he read this. He heard the first season that we did. And he called me up. And usually he's like, yeah, that's pretty good. Nah, I don't like this. That's the way he talks. He was like ecstatic. And he just thought, he said to me, this is a big sale to TV. We're going to do great. But then reality intervened then, in this leftist town. We'll get to that in a second. Should we thank our friends at Policy Genius? We should definitely thank our friends at Policy Genius. You know, we've sent this our character, Austin Lively, into the most dangerous situations. And the one thing he has with him is he has his sword, he has his armor, and he has life insurance. And Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for a life insurance plan that's not tied to your job. Because you know you can lose your job or you can leave your job and you don't want to lose your life insurance. Once you apply at Policy Genius, the team will handle all the paperwork and the red tape. You know, Policy Genius is so so great and it gives you peace of mind and it makes you feel like you're not going to leave sweet little Elisa, whoever your honey is in the lurch. In another kingdom, obviously, there are dragons and ogres and craziness, and it's very dangerous. In the other kingdom, I think it's even more dangerous in Los Angeles and in modern America. So make sure you get yourself covered. And Policy Genius doesn't just make it easy to get life insurance. They can also help you find the right home and auto insurance and disability insurance, too. So when you're looking at your workplace benefits this month, make sure to double-check your life insurance options. Then go to policygenius.com to get quotes and apply in minutes Policy Genius is the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. And SLA, by the way, has been taking life insurance out on you since since you guys got married. Yeah, that's she didn't it's, it's she hasn't told odd. me. I know it's kind of odd. I don't yeah. know what she's up to, but like that's well, she, you know, she's very very prudent. <laughs> don't, very don't drink the coffee. Yeah, fair enough. That's very true. <laughs> so so my agent was so excited by this project, and he just said, "Oh, it's it's natural. It's a natural TV," and it it really didn't even clink. And I have had things go out. 
mostly the system now, since I started doing the show and since I've become such an open conservative, the system is people will say, oh, I love your work, and then they'll Google me or they'll hear me, and then they'll go away. With this, it was just gone. It was just not going to happen. And, I, you know, and the same thing has happened to you. I mean, Yeah, it has. Yeah. And I, I mean, so I guess it was really smart to cast a very open conservative in your <laughs> show. That's the best way to get it made in Hollywood. It, it's interesting because there's so many people in Hollywood who want to get movies made and TV shows made. And so I, p- people I don't think understand quite how it works. The, the reason I can say with confidence that if, if you were not you, maybe if I were not me, if, if we were not open conservatives, that this would be developed by the studios is, is just because of the system. You know, if you, if you go in there with a, a best-selling novelist, a guy who's made a bunch of very big movies with a lot of very big people, yeah. you could, and you weren't an open conservative, you could get any meeting you want. But when you add on to that, that this is a proven product with a huge audience yeah. in a space where the studios now are begging for this kind of narrative podcast to come in as new content. What I've, I think I can say this just totally objectively. There's no guarantee that any movie gets made. There's no guarantee that any TV show gets made. Another Kingdom would be in development. I, I think so. If with, not for the politics. With, with, the, with the popularity of it, with the numbers we've gotten and all this, that would, yeah. be, that would be the telling thing. And look, I started asking around, you know, Hollywood was never my first love. It was always a side gig for me. I mean, I always just wanted to write novels. Didn't I you kind of get dragged into got, writing for I Hollywood? I dragged into writing for Hollywood. I literally was. They said to me, uh, producer said to me, we will pay you to write anything that you want. And I said, ah, no, I don't want to do that. And she was like, I'm sorry, what, you know, because I just, it was not my goal. My goal was to write novels. That's all I ever wanted to do. That's all I love. I love novels more than movies. It's just, that was where I wanted to be. But ultimately, it became fun, and I liked collaborating and all this. So it's not, it's not breaking my heart at all. But I did start to ask around, am I being blacklisted? And, and the picture I got was this. It's not that they have a list, a blacklist, like they did, you know, they did in the McCarthy era. It's not like that. It's not like they say, ah, oh, Clavin, he's this guy. It's that to, today, to sell something, you have to go through so many stages, so many people, that it only takes one person to say, oh, I'm not going to work with him. He's an evildoer. He, he likes Trump or whatever it is. It only takes one person. So basically, you're running through a minefield And the minds are just bigger for you than they are for everybody else. And, you know, the result of this, I mean, I've been talking about this now for 15 years. The only reason I came out as a public conservative is because I wanted to say to conservatives, you're not paying attention to the culture. I wanted to tell them that the arts are where it happens and we need infrastructure, we need awards, we need prizes, all this stuff. And really, they would look at me like, you know, that's cute, but we don't know what you're talking about. Now they're coming back to me and saying, oh, oh, now we see it. Now, you know, you're right. And the problem is, and this is what really bothers me, is conservatives are really good about complaining about what other people make, but they don't make stuff. And they, they sit around and say, oh, there, there, I, there was a gay person in that, te- there was a gay person in that television show. So you sound like an old poop, you know? It's like, like so what? They're showing you the world as it is. And it really is a, it really is a problem. And unfortunately... Christians, who have been very good at infiltrating Hollywood and been very good at telling stories that their audience likes, they also get in the way of everybody else. I mean, I, I consider myself, I am a Christian, and I consider my, my stories to have a spiritual or Christian element, but I don't want them to be squeaky clean. I want them to represent real life. I mean, so I, I'm not interested in I that. I mean, the, the most famous <coughs> Christian book ever written 
is a book by the name of the Bible. Definitely not squeaky <laughs> yeah, clean. That's right. A lot that's... of violence and sex and a lot of weird stuff going on. I get this from Christians all the time. The Bible's enough for me. And you go like, have you read the Bible? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did you see what that guy did with his daughters and there was a whole town? Called... Yeah, never. Anyway, yeah, anyway. anyway I, I just think it's, it is a really interesting thing that, I, I mean, you know, this, this year was interesting because this was three, a three-year project, right? Another Kingdom, writing Another Kingdom. took me three long years, all right? And I finished it about uh, eight months into this year, and I was wiped. I was exhausted, and I just, like, said, all right, I'm not going to—I just said, from now on, you know, the rest of this year, I'm just going to do my show and do my speeches, and that's, that's plenty. That's going to be enough. Dealing only with politics is poisonous. It's mm-hmm. toxic. If right. you don't deal, it, for me, it's the arts. If you don't have the arts, if you don't start to think about spirituality, if you don't start to, if you're not going to church, if you're not doing the things that make life worthwhile, politics will really destroy your point of view. It makes you angry and you know, kind of narrow, and it's not, it's not a good thing. C.S. Lewis had this point about politics, which is that a culture that ignores politics, that doesn't talk about politics, is in danger right. of falling apart. That's right? right, just like a guy who's. Otherwise healthy, if he doesn't pay attention to his health, he might get sick and he might die. But a culture that only pays attention to politics, to the neglect of the arts, the culture, the beautiful things that ostensibly politics is for, is dead already. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a society worth, not worth having. Nothing worth fighting for. And if, and if our voices, I, I don't consider our voices to be the voices of social conservatism or the voices of anything but freedom. You know, that's, and you know, Andrew Breitbart, one of the things when, when he enlisted me into the California conservative movement. I said to him, I'm in, but I'm not going to join in on beating up on people who live a different way. You know, gay people, whatever it is, I'm just not, you know, I'm happy to talk about it and I'm happy to talk about its ramifications, but I'm not going to pick on people because they have their lives. And that's what I believe. (laughs) Andrew said to me, what I'm looking for is more pro-American gay porn. And what he meant, he was joking, he was joking, but what he meant by that is, I want all the pro-Americans, I want everybody who's for freedom. And that's, that's what the arts are like. The arts accept everybody. The arts are naturally inclusive, naturally, uh, you know, broad-minded. And, uh, and I think that that's the kind of stuff we should be creating. You know, on this spiritual aspect yeah. and on this kind of big picture aspect, we are going to be taking your questions, so make sure you get your questions in. But I want to ask you about something that I've, I've noticed and I've heard a little bit here and there. When you were writing Another Kingdom, I think most people don't know this, the devil attacked you. Yes, it's true. The devil would just keep attacking you. This is a real thing. Yeah, no, it's no, it, it, it is a weird, weird thing. So what happened? What are the episodes? Well, remember, this, this book came to me out of the blue, and it came to me at a moment of artistic struggle. Like, I was sitting there going, I don't know, I don't know how to move past the materialist worldview that created the kind of things I was doing into this new point of view without writing basically babyish Christian stuff, which I hate, you know, so I didn't want to do that. And suddenly it was like, here's the answer. Boom. There's the plot. There it is. There's the story. And I was like, oh my goodness. This is... So I just start writing and I'm, I'm thinking, wow, this is great. You and I did this thing together. I remember seriously saying to God, God, I don't think this is going to work. I think it's a stupid idea. I'm doing it because you're telling me to do it. And it was a huge thing. You know, we, right. we were both shot. Suddenly, like when we started doing this, the day we started doing this, the day, the day I finished the first podcast episode writing it, 
I looked around my house and suddenly it was covered with caterpillars. My entire house was covered with these disgusting caterpillars. And I, I had already been, I had been watching some television show where like little worms were the, represented the devil. And suddenly I looked around and they're all over my house. And I thought, what the hell is this? How many times did we record the first episode? I, at least three. What, what was so bizarre about it is we, we did it once, seemed fine, then the footage was gone. That's right. It the just footage disappeared. just disappeared. <laughs> then we, we tried to do it again. I don't exactly remember what happened. It might have been something like I lost my voice or, or we lost more of the footage. It, we could not get this thing off the ground for reasons that were totally unexplained. <laughs> it, was, it was really strange. And then all this weird stuff happened. Like, for instance, the last time we did a show like this, I lost my voice Entirely. I mean, it was gone. I mean, I've never, I've never experienced anything like it. And I was talking to Alicia. We did a conversation. I was going, the devil hates this book. <laughs> and it, it has been strange throughout. At one point, just at, at some very crucial moment when we were doing this, my wife, my wife, oh, my wife was editing the book. That was it. She was editing the book, and she walked outside, and on her car was a glob of organic material that lo it looked like somebody had eaten like a deer and then dropped it on top of the car. And she came back in and she said, now it's happening to me, <laughs> like your stupid book. You know? Right when we started season three, I, we were going on a trip up to San Francisco. We were driving from LA to San Francisco yeah. to celebrate my wife's sweet little Lisa's PhD. We're driving up, we're almost exactly halfway. We're almost at the worst point. We're in a place called Lost Hills. I know Lost Hills. Yeah. Lost Hills, yeah. and it, it is Lost Hills. Yeah. And my car didn't have a ton of miles on it. Very nice car. Starts violently shaking, breaks down, completely dead. <laughs> so, by the way, I'm going to be sending you an invoice. <laughs> I know. I because know. And, voice actors and, don't make and, a ton of money. And, and you know? I, have to, I have to add that I am like the least superstitious. Even it, after I became a Christian, I became less superstitious. Right. I like think I that's even, typical. I wouldn't even participate in like things like throwing salt over the shoulder or anything like that. And it has just been weird, and it has been continually weird until recently. Well, even recently, you've been ill continually. Yeah. You keep getting sick. Yep, <laughs> and, and it's always around these Another Kingdom yeah. recordings. It is, it is really, really fun. My professional life would be a lot easier without the Another Kingdom recordings because I wouldn't be sick anymore. I could do my show. I'd sleep and, plenty. And at the same time this is happening, I have to say, as we sit and do this, and this has been my favorite production season. The guys have really gotten on top of it. They know exactly what they're doing. We trust Austin Stevens is just delivering every, every week, and it's just it's great. You know, it's terrific. But there have been moments in the room where I could just feel all of us sort of saying, like, this is, we're doing something good. We're doing yeah. something really good. I know I, sh I, I wrote it, so, but it, it just was given to me. And you, I, this is the only nice thing I will ever say about you. You are doing one of the great jobs. I mean, you, oh, you, you have, you. you've gotten into, you know, I noticed they have these pictures. They're illustrating, for those of you who are just listening, they're illustrating this as we talk. And I noticed the picture of Austin Lively has become you <laughs> over time. <laughs> Like, he's morphed into more. you. Yeah. But that, that's really fair because you've taken over this part and we're, we, we sit in the other room, you're in one room doing it and we're in the other room. And I can just feel us, we're sitting there going like, yeah, this is something, we're doing something that, it, that works. I do think it's, it's really important. It is the thing that I'm doing right now that I, I feel the best about. I feel that it's really making a contribution in the culture because as you say, conservatives whine and complain a lot, but how many actually go out and either fund artwork that, that is 
telling a truthful message and not, not a kind of leftist ideological message, how many people go out and watch it and participate and how many people get to, to be able to actually be a part of it and, and contribute uh, to it. Yeah. I, I just, uh, it's a great, great thing to be able to do. And it, it really has been fun. There have been some scenes in this. Like there was, there's a scene, well, well, we'll play it actually. There's a scene in this where there's a joust because he's going back and forth between LA and this kind of weird medieval fantasy land. And he gets in a joust and he doesn't know what he's doing and his horse is winged, so he takes to the sky, and the other guy's horse turns out to be winged, and he comes up after him, and there's a joust in the sky. I was writing this, and I thought, this is cool. This is, I can't remember ever thinking that. This is like one of the coolest action scenes, and I pride myself on my action scenes, but I was just thinking like, yeah, this is, this is cool. You know? <laughs> Do we have this? Can we just play it? Now the stallion folded his wings behind him, and we went into a dive-bomb glide. But still, I could not get control of that massive lance. I could not make it point the way I wanted it to. And Littleman, climbing slowly toward me on his powerful flying destrier, had his lance pinned right on me again, unwavering. This was no good. I was going to die. The two horses flew closer and closer. I fought to control my lance point to no avail. His lance point moved ever nearer to my heart. In the final second before the clash, I lost my nerve. I tried to make the stallion bank to the right to get out of the way of Littleman's weapon. Sir Littleman expertly shifted the lance and kept the point trained on me. Crying out in fear, I tried desperately to put the tiny shield in position to catch the blow. And then, with a shattering crash, we came together midair. It's just a cool scene, you know, jousting in midair. First of all, I've always thought, like, how do you joust? You know, <laughs> yeah, actually, what do you do with that? I, I, I had to look up a lot of jousting stuff to do it, but also just the idea that you're jousting in midair, it's just a cool idea. Also, we got to use the word destrier, which means warhorse, which no one had heard. I know, it was, I just, it was only me and all my sophisticated friends who would use that word destrier. So now I'm glad all the plebs can use it too. That's right, we have spread the word. You know, there's, this is one thing I really love about the whole book, the whole series is there are moments in it. I can't, I'm going to inflate your ego so much. Please. There, there, yeah. are, there are moments in it that are really profoundly resonant, that really strike you at your core because they're talking about spiritual things in a way that is, is so, so connects you. It so hits you right in the gut. I, I was recording the, the audio book of the first book. And so this is now a year or two after we had recorded the series. I've read the books multiple times already. And I was reading it by the end of the first book. And I was in the recording studio just somewhere here in, in Burbank or something. And I teared up. I, I actually like had to... <laughs> I kind do of, like to hear that. I it did. I, I really... And it was so... You would think maybe the first or second time you read it, it does that. But it, it did it to me again and again. So you get that, that moment which really resonates. Yeah. And then there are some just hilarious scenes. I mean, there's some really, really funny scenes. The voice of it... The tone of the, the book is really funny. There was one, one of my favorites is when, when Austin Lively is, is called by Jane Janeway and she says, Austin, come help me. Come help me. I'm in trouble. Come help me. And so he goes and he's, he's going to try to find her and whatever trouble she's in at this house. And uh, then she comes out of the darkness and almost murders him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All crazed. Do we, have, do we have a cut of that? Do we have a clip of that? I stumbled forward by slow steps my hands out in front of me. Then a branch snapped in the darkness to my right. My gut ached as I held my breath and swiveled toward the sound. The fog churned. The night spiraled. 
and did I see a ghostly figure drifting toward me? I stood and stared, uncertain. The owl hooted again. And yes, there it was. The figure grew more distinct, a white form mingling with the mist, moving toward me through the mist. Who's there? And with a psycho shriek, the figure rushed at me. I saw a white phantom. I saw bright, frightened eyes. I saw a butcher knife raised high above me, gripped in a hand stained red with blood. Her crazed scream enveloped everything as the knife came plunging down toward my neck. Jane! I was fast, faster than I would have expected. As the knife came down, I turned sideways and swung my forearm, knocking the blade aside and pushing Jane away from me. I caught her from behind, grabbed her wrist with my right hand, and wrapped my left arm around her chest, pulling her close against me. You know, I'm really glad you brought this scene up because one of the things that's been a joy about writing this is all my life I've written suspense stories, and they've all been very realistic and very planted in reality. And as I became a more religious person, as I became a more religious person, they they started to divide. My stories started to divide into a sort of undertone of... uh, almost fairy, a fairy tale, really, uh, and a legend that sort of worked its way in. And I've read a lot of this, about this, and I know a lot about it, so I planted it <coughs> into very realistic stories. And then when I did Werewolf Cop, I just thought, the hell with it, I'm just going to go go for it, you know? And, and this is part of that. But one of the things I love doing most is when I can capture a scene that is a realistic scene that takes place in L.A., that has, you know, ordinary people in it, but it has this aspect of being almost fantastic, almost a scene out of... Uh, out of the imagination, and this—that was a scene I thought that I was really happy with in that regard. That it's like a go- it's like a ghost scene, and, right? And the other thing is, you're talking about the comedy in it. It's like one of the things you have done amazing. I mean, I, I'm kind of interested in this. I've been a big fan of actors. Actors are insane, as we know. Certainly, talking to yeah. you, yeah. But I've always really enjoyed them, and I've always been amazed at their craft because I don't have it. It's something I have no clue how to do. You have managed to shift between the serious aspects of this and the comic aspects of this kind of seamlessly. And I'm wondering, like, is, is there a difference? You, you, you're you a highly trained actor. I mean, hard, hard to believe that you're highly trained in anything. But you're an actor. <laughs> That's the one thing. Yeah. yeah. Completely no. imaginary skill. Is there a difference between standing on a stage or standing in front of a camera and doing this purely by voice? It's completely different. It's completely, yeah. different. completely yeah. different process, completely different... Uh, experience because when you're doing a, a role in a movie or in a TV show or in a play, obviously it's your whole body that's involved in this. So you, you know, they, the very basic definition of acting is living truthfully in imaginary circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the kind of basic method of acting that people use is they develop the inner life of the character and they develop all of the, you know, from that inner life of the character comes all of this physicality. You're communicating so much more. You have your whole body to communicate. So you're, you're not thinking very much about, uh, you know, after you graduate from the third grade, the, your third grade play, you're not thinking about how lines sound as much as you're thinking about what you are doing, and right. what you want to be doing and what you want to accomplish on stage and what, what your relationships are to these other characters and you're reacting to other people with your body so that very often you don't need to say a thing at all. When it comes to voice acting, you lose 99% of your instrument, your instrument being your whole body. Yeah. And, you know, so in some ways this is very limiting for an actor. You know, you spend a long time training and really trying to master your body. 
when you do voice acting, you lose all of that, but it, it liberates you because you have to convey everything in the voice. So very often also, if you see videos of people voice acting, they look like maniacs. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, they're yeah. not, they're that. not yeah. acting at all. Yeah. And so I really love it that especially this season, we've turned the cameras off. Me too. And we're in that sound booth where all, you know, all good voice acting happens. And I'm glad there's not a camera on there because I, I usually look like a maniac when I'm in doing it. But it's, it's all because you're now focusing everything in and conveying everything in your voice. It, it helped that we took the cameras off. It helped your performance. It yeah. actually enlivened it. And all. So this is really interesting. This is why I love acting. One of the hardest things... To, to do when you write genre stuff is to make sure that that things are realistic. You know, like mm -hmm. in other words, what would I be feeling if a dragon came and got me? What would I be feeling in a gunfight? You know, what and and these are things. You know, some of these things you can ask people. I've asked people what it feels like to be in a gunfight, what it feels like to be shot at. But you really have to imagine your guy doing it because I tend to write very normal people. I right. don't tend to write like you know super cops or anything like that. When you're doing, when you're bringing real emotions into imaginary circumstances. Is it harder if the imaginary circumstances are like this, truly fantastic? No, not at all. I mean, I, it, you know, a scene where you've got two Pegasus horses right, flying right, yeah. and jousting, that scene can be much more realistic if it's written well than a scene of two guys walking down the street having a conversation. Right. You know, the, the most fantastical scenes in Another Kingdom are far more realistic than any sitcom that you would get on network television because yeah. they just have more to do with the truth. And so, you know, m my acting teacher is, you know, I, I think now he's 96, 97 years old, a legendary guy named Wynn Handman. Oh, yeah. Wynn Handman, yeah. great, great acting teacher. And Wynn would always say that actors have to be gullible fools. <laughs> and, he, and he really means it. He's a wonderfully nurturing acting teacher. Unlike the, the classic image of the acting teacher is this embittered old, you know, <laughs> right. nobody who screams at their students. This guy loves actors. He always nurtures actors. But he's, he's completely right about this. Actors have to be gullible fools. You have to open yourself up to the possibilities of the circumstances on the page. Another thing he would always say is that good acting can make up for bad writing, but good writing does so much mm. for you. It gives you so many of the circumstances so that especially when you've been living with characters like Another Kingdom for three yeah. years, you know who these people are. You, and, you know, another aspect of building character is you have to you can't be judging your character. Right. You have to, it's truth you have to like your own guy. That's right? true with writing, too. You have is to it, write to some of the most horrible people and just feel like they're human and they're part of the of world. Of course, because there's, you can't possibly play a character if you're standing outside of him thinking about what an awful guy he is. Even Serge Orozco. Yeah. And you're playing Serge Orozco. I mean, that guy's got reasoning. That guy's got That's emotions. Right. That guy's got... He's, he actually is not like a mustache-twirling villain. He exactly. Yeah. And, exactly. Uh -huh. And, and the, cir the circumstances of that, no matter how fantastic they are, I mean, actually, in the case of Another Kingdom, some of the, the most easily accessible scenes are the most fantastical because, to quote Winston Churchill, when great forces are on the move in the world, That's we right. learn we're spirits, not animals. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's take some questions. Let's do it. Um, what do we got here? Okay, so from Jack. I remember Andrew saying there were some parallels to some of the Epstein story. I originally thought he was referring to the pool house scene, <laughs> the last scene where some shady stuff is going on. But what's happening to Jane is really, really similar. Was this intentional? Because Jane is... But well, we don't want to give too much of it. We don't want to give it away. She's, uh, she ends up in jail. Right, right. And, you know, and the similarities are, you have to admit, right, stunning. 
It was written before any of that happened. Was it really? It was plotted three. Right, of course it was. It was plotted three years before any of it happened. It's just, but it is, it is observational. And and I'll tell you why. I I was talking before about how I started to move into some kind of, there began to be a fairy tale aspect to my stories. And I wrote a story, a a novel called A Killer in the Wind, uh, which has a very uh, uh, powerful fairy tale underpinning. If you read it, it's a detective story, it's a police story, it's totally realistic. But if you actually are looking more deeply into it, you see like, oh yeah, this is actually in some ways a fairy tale. Same with another, one of my favorite books and a book that didn't do as well as I wish it had is Identity Man, uh, which is another one. It has a fairy tale aspect. And one of the continual uh, themes of fairy tales is the abduction of children. You know, you think about Hansel and Gretel, you think about children in danger, children in peril. And at the same time I was getting into that, I started to notice that there was a recurring story in Hollywood, a story about children being passed around that would rise to the surface and then vanish. And I would remember, like, somebody would come, uh, there was a TV actor, a, a child actor named Corey. And Corey I, uh, Haim and was one of them. And yes. then Corey, uh, forget, gosh, I forget the Yeah, name. I forgot Feldman, it. Corey Feldman. Feldman, that's right. And he came out and he started to say, we were all abused. All of us were abused. And other child actors have said this. I, I read... Variety, the show business trade paper, and they said people are really sweating about this because once the secret comes out, a lot of very powerful people are going to be involved. Corey Feldman even said, you know, there's one person who's so powerful, but I can't name him, right? And suddenly the story vanished. And I thought, wait a minute. You know, how does, how does a, a reporter just say, yeah, I'm not going to... Like, if I were a reporter... I would just say, I'm going to follow that story until I find out who this guy is and I'm going to bring him down because that's what you do as a reporter. But right. that has gone out of the, the journalistic world. I think uh, newspapers like the LA Times depend on film advertising and all this. And yeah. so I began to notice, moving just simply from the idea of fairy tales to observational life, I began to notice that the abuse of young people, the sexual abuse of young people, was a theme throughout the powerful, the world of the powerful and the elite, right? And I started to think, well, wait a minute, what is going on? So I just made it up. I made this story up because I'm not a reporter, because I couldn't ferret it out, because I couldn't get at it. I thought, this is, I'm going to imagine this story. And I imagined Epstein's death into being, essentially. I mean, imagine that story into being. And all that tells me, I mean, one, it tells me I'm a good observer. I know I'm a, I am a very good observer. That, that is true. But it also tells me that this is real. This is a real thing mm-hmm. that is really going on. And when I follow the Epstein story and follow the fact that George Stephanopoulos was covering up women for Clinton, and then he goes to ABC and ABC covers up the Jeffrey Epstein story, you know. And they go, when, when there's a whistleblower at ABC who leaks the information that they covered up the Epstein story, what does ABC do? They go and find out the whistleblower. Instead they of they're finding the person who killed the story, right? right. Which would, so... It just tells me that this is a real thing, that the sexual abuse of young people is a pervasive aspect of elite, uh, powerful people, at least in this country and probably in other countries. And I think that, uh, you know, I wish, I wish we still had an honest journalistic system where somebody would just say, I'm going to get this. I mean, you know, the only person who's really written about it is my colleague, James Patterson, the famous uh, thriller writer. He wrote a book about Epstein uh, just showing how this, the original case against him was scotch. So again, I, I didn't base it on this, you know, um, although it is true if you rearrange the letters of Serge Roscoe, they do spell Jeffrey They spell Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. I, that's what I thought. I'm glad you could finally... <laughs> now I just got him come out. Yeah, people that. always ask about that anagram. <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. All right, here's another question from Seth. 
Who is the closest modern-day representation of Orozco? There you go. Mm. I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll, I'll... Well, it would just seem to me <laughs> that all similarities to persons living or dead... Completely coincidental. Co- completely coincidental, yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's, I can't think of Serge Orozco. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't. No, that's just, nothing's uh, coming up. Although it does, it does. You know, again, if you hold it up to a mirror and mm-hmm. turn it upside down, it does spell Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill <laughs> Jeffrey himself. Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. <laughs> All right, this is for you yep. from Chad. What's next after Another Kingdom? This is an important question for me because you're the only guy who employs me <laughs> in Hollywood anymore. What is next after Another Kingdom? Can we expect another audio drama from the Daily Wire? You know, there is a nonfiction book that I have been wanting to write for maybe 10 years. And I, the only nonfiction book I've ever written is my memoir, The Great Good Thing, uh, which really did well. You know, I mean, it's still, and it's still moving. So that's, a very, that's very uh, touching to me and inspiring. And I would really like to write this book. So I'm going to take, uh, well, however long it takes. I mean, I don't think it's going to take forever to write it, but I, I would like to write this book. And then, yeah, I think we should do more of this. I think it's crazy not to. And if, if, if it's the only way that we can get content that is not, le- you know, this is not right-wing content. Right. It's just content. It's content that is not polluted by this left-wing, lecturing, hectoring voice that the, that the left has put into everything it does, where they're constantly saying, you know, I loved, like, Charlie's Angels come out and it bombs, and they say, this is because people don't want to see women, you know, and I say, yeah, you made a crap movie, and we're tired of you yelling at us. Right. You know? So this is just content that basically describes the world as it is, as, as close as I can get to describing it as it is. So we'd be crazy not to do more of it, I think. Right. I Absolutely, we have to do more of it. Even I just think, I have worked on a lot of terrible projects. Yeah. I mean, I've worked on projects that were terrible because they were just overly leftist and political. I've worked on projects that just, they weren't, they weren't good stuff. They weren't good content. And to be able to work on this, I don't give a damn if no studio wants to pick it up and put it on TV. Getting to work on this, getting to put it out there in the culture is so gratifying. It is so artistically and and culturally gratifying that we have to do more. But I will tell you, having read the memoir, having read The Great Good Thing, my first reaction after that was, I really want want you to write a book about, a nonfiction book about the whole culture about yeah. Western civilization, That's, about what I should know. <laughs> this is what I this is what I want to write, and I, again, it's not a, an eight hundred page book. It's just a, my impressions of certain things that I think it's. It has taken me a long time to get the shape of it in my mind, and mm-hmm. now it's there. And I think I should sit down. What, what I've basically been doing is, is resting up since Another Kingdom. You know, it really did uh, knock me down, uh, surprises, startlingly. The day after I finished uh, the last volume. I actually thought I had hurt myself in some mental way. Like I thought, wow, you know, I feel I've never had this kind of like just deadheaded uh, feeling. So that's how I felt after I completed Reasons to Vote for Democrats, <laughs> Comprehensive Guide. You know, it's funny. So I felt the same way after reading that. Just... <laughs> <laughs> All right, another question from Caitlin. Uh, what are your guys' favorite genre to read that influences your politics? And for me, your writing. What is the favorite genre for you? What influences your politics when you read it? You know that I don't read fiction. You don't, I, you don't read fiction? So, I know. I know because guys, I'm a Philistine. Guys don't read fiction. And guys don't, yeah. don't read fiction. Yeah. And it's funny because you write these books that are really quite masculine yeah. for a uh, category of human beings that doesn't read fiction. It, it is true. It's been the bane of my existence. Yeah. What I tend to read is 
Uh, I'm now actually trying to read much more fiction and I'm trying to work my way through the classics that somehow all my years of education never introduced me yeah. to. But what I, I do prefer to read is philosophy and theology. That's just always what I gravitate right. toward. That's what I want to read in my free time. Uh, the the only fiction genre that I really do enjoy reading and I try to do a lot is poetry, hmm. which I is, love I love reading yeah. poetry and that I find in terms of the way I think about the world, poetry and other fiction has really shaped it much more than any nonfiction that I've read. The nonfiction makes me a more precise thinker, and that's why I read it all the time, especially if you're trying to do political analysis. But when I think of the 30,000-foot view, literature and poetry give me a much better understanding. You know, I, poetry, poetry made me a writer, and for a while I was actually a poet. And I started publishing in some very good journals. And when I saw my poetry in these journals, I realized poetry was dead. I thought, nobody's reading this except me and other poets. Yeah. And I, that's not what I wanted. I wanted to reach actual human beings. And so I always loved the, the mystery genre. I'd, oh, it had shaped me. It had shaped my mind, the mystery genre. And so I, I went into it because I thought I had a knack for it. I had a skill for it. And I had a real understanding of it. I, I, I tend to love, what I tend to love are really uh, realistic stories that are highly plotted. And so the books that have really shaped my mind, I've talked about crime and punishment. Yeah, well, over, over the summer, uh, when I was traveling, I read, Anthony Trollope is a much underrated novelist. For people who love uh, Charles Dickens, who just like Charles Dickens stories, Trollope is the conservative Dickens. He writes so honestly about society. He has no plots. He doesn't care about plots. He's just observational uh, novelist. But his books are gripping. And over the summer, uh, Ellen and I were in uh, Switzerland hiking. And so we just hike in the morning and we get to another, we hike from town to town. And then in the afternoon, we just read, you know. And I read this novel, Phineas Finn, and the sequel of it, Phineas Redux by Anthony Trollope. This is the best, these are the best political books I've ever read, with the exception of The Power Broker by Robert Caro, which also taught me everything I know about politics. And the reason those things affect me is because they don't just give you the, the story of, of a political moment. They give you the internal feelings of what people are doing. Right. What is so wonderful about Phineas Finn is, is the description of a young person trying to make his way in the world. And one of the things that happens after a certain age, when you feel like you've made your way in the world, when I feel like I've done a lot of my bucket list stuff, I've done, I've accomplished certain things, and now I feel I'm playing with the house's money, there's stuff I want, still want to do, I'm really ambitious to do it, but I'm not competing with anybody anymore. I'm like, you know, I'm like I, that makes you a happier mm -hmm. soul. But I sometimes have to think back to people your age and how I, I would have killed my grandmother and eaten her to get the life that I have now, to do what I do now. I was so ambitious. Not, I wasn't ambitious to like be a star. I was ambitious to, to be able to live as a writer. Right. That's what I wanted to do. Right. And, and, and so it was really helpful reading Phineas Finn to remember that politics are people's careers, and it's not, they're not just in it for the ideas like I am. I'm now in it for the ideas, right, because I'm not getting anything out of it. But they, that's their career. That's that guy's career. And it really reminded me, and that's what I love about great fiction, is it reminds you not just of the real world, but of the internal world, what it looks like inside people. Well, of course, especially now I find so many of the political philosophers that I like to read yeah. are anti-ideological, which sounds like it's almost a contradiction to be a philosopher who's anti-ideological, but it's, it's guys who say, hey, if you've got some little manifesto with five bullet points, that is not going to tell you about human nature. That's right. not going to tell you right. about politics, and which is very true. Even histories, when you read history books, you don't know that you're getting the truth. Right. I mean, you're getting, right. in many ways, a, often a very 
ideologized version of, of what history is. Fiction, ironically, can't lie to you as easily. That's right. Uh, fiction, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Journalists can lie much more easily than fiction writers. Right. If a fiction writer isn't telling the truth, at some level, he's, he's either writing garbage, you know, yeah. pop, maybe popular garbage, but still garbage, or he's going to fail because if people come to you for if co- people come to you for good fiction and you lie to them, they know it. That's right. Yeah. yeah. All right. From Joel, Drew, how emotional do you get when you kill off a character? I have to be honest. I, I'm like a, a non-sentimental person, but I really do live in my fiction. When I'm writing, I really am gone. And there have been a couple of scenes that have devastated me. I mean, I there have been. <laughs> In, in true crime, uh, he, the guy, this is about a guy on death row, and he writes a letter to his wife, what he wants to be his legacy, because he's going to die. And I remember writing that and just sobbing in a way I never have in real life. <laughs> real life has never affected. I'm kind of gritty when it comes to real life. But I remember writing that and just melting away. And you never, uh, I never like to kill any main character. I've done it. People don't like it. Readers don't like right. it when you do it. They, they feel like, oh, my gosh, you know, just like real death. They feel like there's nowhere to go from there. But I have done it, and it, yeah, it depresses you. It, it really does. It brings yeah. you down. And uh, there's something about, you know, I think you probably know this from acting, too. When you, in order to do what you do, uh, sports writer, it was a sports writer once said that writing is easy. All you do is sit, sit down and open a vein. Yeah. In order, in order to create, you have to open up the door of your heart. You just got, you got to do that. And you don't do that in real life if you're smart, right? <laughs> you kind of wonder, but no, it gets you. And it gets you too because if you want to produce something that's truthful, you, you know, you've got to really get into the details. You've yep. got to really see every little detail. And if you go through a trauma or you even witness a trauma or you even heard about a trauma, yeah. You, over time, do your best to heal up those wounds right. and, and move along. And you remember the broad outlines, but the details go away until you want to produce some art. That's, this is one of the things I dislike. about. I, I love my work. I love doing what I do. I really do. I mean, it makes me like happy that I get to do it and all this. But it's, you don't get to grow up like other people because yeah. you have to keep that connection open all the time. And I think it makes you a little wiser, but it also makes you a little less whole. You know, and where other people leave things behind, you're always opening them up again. Let's do another one if we've got, it, uh, got time. All right. For Michael from Craig, how long was the average recording session for Another Kingdom? Depends if the devil was trying to screw <laughs> us up this time or not. Because we, it, it has varied over yeah. the seasons. You know, season one, we were doing it in your attic, and the devil was screwing right. up every issue, so we'd have to reshoot a lot. I mean, it could take... I, I have always prided myself on voice acting in particular. I've, I've tried to do it in, in stage or film, too, of coming in fairly prepared yep. so it, it doesn't, you don't have to waste a lot of time on set. I really hate wasting time on set. Being on a film set is wasting time. I mean, it just takes so long to do yeah. anything. So I never want people to be waiting on me. So we could do, you know, uh, an hour long session or an hour long episode. You could do it in an hour and a half to an hour 45, which is you know, pretty tight. The second season, because we had this film component to it, if you missed, you know, if you hit a wrong word at the wrong time, you'd have to go back 10 minutes or I for, something. I forgot that. that oh, was, it would take forever. It was brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but this time, I think we really have gotten it down. I mean, it's about knowing your characters, living with those yeah. characters. I think there's, there's such a rhythm now 
that I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a one-take wonder on them, but there is just a comfort that goes along. We can do it pretty quickly. Well, it is funny. Every time we sit down, you joke, you know, we're going to do this well, one, one take one, one take. And, and you, you come close, but I keep thinking while, while you're doing it, when we first did it in my attic, we had this problem with owls. and Because yeah. <laughs> you know, I have a lot of owls in my house, and they're loud. It's like, whoo. Yeah. You know, we'd have to say, all right, we'll cut the owl. And then at the very <laughs> moment, whoo, <laughs> Austin, it was Austin. Yeah, it was Austin. All right, last All right, one. for Drew from Paul. How difficult or easy was it for you to dive into the fantasy genre after your whole career yeah. at not doing fantasy? You know, it's funny. In my, in my youth, when I would sometimes write uh, pseudonymous works um, to make money yeah. so we could survive because we were starving. There were times when we were really, you know, doing the whole starving artist thing. And I'd dash off some piece of, uh, you know, fiction uh, yeah. under a pseudonym. One of them was a fantasy book. Uh, called The House of the Lions. And it's pretty good. It, I've gone back to it. It's actually pretty good. And I wrote it under pseudonym. I won't tell you what it is. But, but the one problem was, when it came out, I, I wasn't versed in the fantasy genre. So a lot of the things people had seen before that, that, uh, that were new to me, in other words, I know the mystery genre so well that I really can be original because nobody has done things that I don't know about. So the biggest thing with moving into the fantasy genre is I wanted to make sure that I would not be repetitive and that when I was using uh, tropes from the fantasy genre, I would know it. Right. So I would be, it would be referential, not... Uh, um, accidental. Play, but yeah, not plagiarism, right. you know, not accidental plagiarism. Uh, so that was the hardest part about it because once I got it, I love, I love doing fantasy stuff. I love doing scenes in, in the woods uh, in the first book. I just absolutely loved it where the creatures come out and all this stuff. And I just had to be very careful. Uh, I read a lot of really good, really top-notch fantasy so I would know the, the history of it because that's part of doing what you do. And it always bothers me in Hollywood when I talk to some 20-year-old who's never seen Gone with the Wind and never seen some, you know, Citizen Kane, some of the great movies. And I think, like, you don't know what you're doing if right. you don't know the genre. So I had to learn the genre as a reader more than as a and writer. And speaking of those scenes in the woods in that first season, I mean, I'm, I'm remembering a scene with the wood nymphs and uh, <laughs> not like, a lot of clothing. And, I yeah. always loved that scene. I, I know. It was, it's <laughs> one of my favorite scenes. And I, I'm almost certain you did not plagiarize that. I think that was all original. Definitely worth going back and seeing. I think we got to get out of here. We do? Oh, we I have work to do. All right. Yeah, some of us have to do something. We can't just sit around. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for tuning in to the Another King discussion. Always a pleasure, it's Drew. It's great talking to you, pal. I'm really Michael is. Knowles. I'm Andrew Clavin. We'll see you next time.